there, folks, and welcome to Christ in Every Word, a podcast of the Concordia Bible Institute housed on the beautiful campus of Concordia University, Wisconsin. This is your opportunity to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest the sacred scriptures with me, Dr. Brian German, Associate Professor of Theology here at the University and the Director of the Concordia Bible Institute. We're making our way through the book of Genesis. No small task, of course, 50 total chapters with a specific focus on Christianity and Genesis. Hey, isn't that kind of uh, anachronistic? Isn't that sort of out of place or chronologically uh, befuddled? No, I think part of the beauty of this scripture here, this Old Testament, as we call it, uh, it's really the Bible. It's not just an ancient Near Eastern collection of literature, this actually is constitutive. It actually forms and gives meaning and shape to the Christian church of all times and places. So where do we see the person and work of Christ and by extension his body living and active and moving and having their being in these old texts here that we uh, that we call Genesis in the beginning. We're taking a look at the flood narrative, which uh, chapter 8's on the docket today. Just I mean, reflecting on how long this thing is, why so many numbers? Why all the emphasis on the dimensions of the ark, on the two-by-two, two, on the male and female? Talked a little bit about this last time, and we're going to see this again this time in chapter 8. We still get this... 150 days for the waters have uh, had abated. We're still going to see this kind of, you know, the, levy, the the livestock, the beasts that are with him, God remembering Noah, emphasis on the waters, emphasis on the ark, God remembering, and the seven days, and we'll have a dove and raven and so on. Why so much detail about this event? Well, one thing, if you forget everything else, one thing you got to remember is all this detail will be evoked in key moments later, for example, all the dimensions for the ark, think all the dimensions for the tabernacle and all the dimensions for the temple and all the dimensions for the new temple at the end of Ezekiel. These dimensions are churchly dimensions. They're God's house kind of dimensions. The ark is the church. That's the safe haven. And the waters we talked about as this both destructive but also life-giving we're going to see this again here at the beginning of chapter 8. God remembers Noah and all the beasts, all the livestock that were with him in the ark. This is, uh, again, all the emphasis on the animals I talked about last time. The early church was very fond of seeing these animals as a kind of depiction of the nation streaming to the one high priest who is our Noah, the one in whom we find rest for our restlessness, Christ Jesus. And uh, you get that picture sustained here with God remembering. Think about, you know, the meal of remembrance. Do this in remembrance of me. God remembering the people on his ark of the Christian church, Noah, his high priest, and everyone with him. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the water subsided. I love, love, love the description that's given there. Did you catch it? I suppose you could do this water subsiding in a lot of different ways. Uh, open up the deep, uh, open up the earth. You know, Revelation has that passage, right? The earth opens up to swallow all the spew from the dragon, from the beast, you know, this kind of thing. Uh, at the end of chapter 12 there from the dragon. Um, I suppose you could, I don't know, uh, snap the fingers and say, voila, no more water, but he causes a wind to blow. 
and then the water is taken care of. It subsides. Love it because that's totally out of the exodus. Did you catch it? An east wind blows. Why from the east? Why not north, south, west, right? East is that direction of salvation. The Garden of Eden is in the east. Sun rises in the east, of course, these kinds of moments. Uh, The entrance to the tabernacle is in the east and so on. So you get an east wind blowing the water of the Red Sea for the exodus. Here for the flood, you have a wind blowing over the earth and the water subsided, which means this is the place of your of your exodus. This is your safe haven. This is your deliverance. You will be saved through the water, that Red Sea through the water. Of course, here you will be saved through this water. It also, as you read along, it's one of those, oh, you reread, you read the Bible, then you reread it. Things kind of come alive in a new way. We talked about that last time too. That's the case here too. It begs for these events to be associated. So, If you want a fuller understanding of the Exodus, read the flood. And if you want a fuller understanding of the flood, read the Exodus. And the the, the whole of those things, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts, as they say. Um, One can enhance the other. It's really, it's scripture interpreting scripture, but it's it's not just a Lutheran thing. It's, It's a Bible thing. It's how the Bible works, making allusions to itself to say, hear this event in light of another event. The foundations of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed and the rain from the heaven was restrained and the waters receded from the earth continually. Did you hear that? I mean, on the same kind of topic is the kind of echoes that you hear from creation. Um, God causes the water to come from the ground. You can hear this or see this in uh, in Genesis chapter 2. Um in, in verse 5, uh, the Lord God had not caused it to rain on land, and there was no man to work the ground. And uh, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. What is this mist coming up from the ground? It's kind of debated. But the thing is, it sounds like there's water from above, water from below. And that's the same deal here as you get this, the fountains of the of the deep, with water coming from underneath and from above. The big point, I think, is the allusion to Eden. What's happening in this ark is this is a new creation. We're going to have this creation done again. So you hear these echoes to Eden, and that's we're going to get this throughout the Bible. Like, why are there palm trees, for example, in the tabernacle, temple? This kind, of, the, the engravings of palm trees in the temple. Um, this is your Eden on earth. It's in God's house. It's in God's ark. If you want Eden restored. Uh, it's in the ark of his Christian church. That's where Christianity is here. That's why this is a this is a fascinating, like a new creation, a new Eden is possible even after being kicked out, and it's in the ark of of Noah, in the ark of of God's high priest, our greater Noah. 150 days the water had abated. In the seventh month, 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. Big debate. Where are these places and have they found any wood and all these sorts of things? I think the big deal is that the the whole business of Christianity is a matter of mountains. Um, Eden itself, you get the picture of it being on a mountain. If you look at, I'd say, uh, Ezekiel 28, you know, this lament over the prince for Tyre and you're going to get the sense that Eden itself, well, even if you don't, as you move through, what do you have? Mountains all over the place. Mount Sinai, right? 
Mount Sinai, uh, here's the covenant, my promise, my agreement with you. Mount Zion, Jerusalem, oh my, Mount Mount Calvary, uh, Mount Golgotha, you could say. Um, this is where our Lord does his best work. And by the time you get to Revelation, where are we? We're on a heavenly Zion. We're on a heavenly mountain. Okay, Isaiah 25 also comes to mind. This kind of on this mountain, I'll prepare a feast of rich food, this kind of end times banquet up high on a mountain. Well, that's exactly the arc of the Christian church. In Revelation 14, you get this, the beast and the, uh, the, the dragon and the two beasts, which is kind of an unholy trinity, does all of its work. Uh, the dragon stands on the sea and on the land. Uh, but right after that, you get a, a presentation of the Holy Trinity and where is everyone um, safely up high uh, on a mountain. That's the solid ground on which we stand. Uh, and that's the kind of uh, reality we have in the Christian church. Not even the gates of hell, not the waters of hell will prevail against it the ark coming to rest on the mountains of Ararat. I mean, this again, like when you see other mountains later in the Bible, you're going to hear these mountains in relation to other mountains that you see. This is where the church is, up high as a kind of safe haven from the chaos, the waters of destruction and, and death that this world has to offer. The waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. I think I mentioned last time that when you get all this emphasis on the dates, that's a big deal, especially when you get year, month, and day. That's like, okay, Babylonian captivity or restoration from the captivity. These are very big moments in the history of salvation. Um, not just a coincidence there. Uh, and so you get that here, too, that this is a salvation moment. This is bigger than just one little little narrative. Oh, it's good for them, but what does it mean for me? This is... This is also having to do with you, the salvation of God's people in all times and places. It happens at a very specific moment at the same time. On this day of this month of this year, you were baptized. And even though those waters continued to abate, uh, it wasn't like a one-shot deal. You know, this, this, uh, the water abating, it took some time. Well, the chaos, the destruction of this life lasts, and yet it won't be the end of the story. The destructive waters of this world, think Peter, you know, walking on water. He looks at the wind and the waves. He sees the destruction, and that's his focus, and he sinks into it. He takes his eyes off of our Lord. Same thing here is that, you know, even after being baptized, that will, that reality, that destruction around you is going to continue, but it doesn't have the end word here. And we'll see this with the birds. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened a window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. Kind of a fascinating animal of all the things to pick. Uh, ravens, you see, not typically the cleanest of birds. Um, you see him with Elijah bringing food to him in the wilderness uh, in 1 Kings 17. Uh, the raven is, I don't know, a scavenger bird. Because it doesn't return, you get the sense that, okay, there's something out there. There's uh, carcasses to find or there's a place to land and rest, and I don't need the ark anymore. But then the next thing is a dove. And you're probably pretty familiar with how this goes. Sends it out. No place. So the dove comes back. He puts out his hand, takes her, brings her into the ark, waits another seven days, sends forth the dove. The dove come back, comes back with the olive leaf. 
and then another seven days sends forth and the dove's not there anymore. I see this as kind of a, I don't know. I think that why two different birds? I think on the one hand you have this, you go from this unclean scavenger bird to the, the, the bird that we'll see elsewhere in the Bible, the baptism of Jesus, the spirit descends like a dove. You go from, I don't know, in one way, the law to the gospel, you might say. The bird that goes forth first is the, you know, this is the reality, sin, death. It lives on carcasses. It's unclean and so on. But at the same time, that's not the only thing that Noah sends forth from the ark into that, the world of death. He sends forth the dove also to live and move and kind of interact with with this creation I think in some ways you see, I mean, why, why a dove for the spirit at the baptism of Jesus? Well, in one, for one reason, it's, there's a new worldwide flood in town and it's being dumped on Jesus in his baptism. All the sin, all of our evil is being dumped on him. And he places us, uh, in the ark of his church so that we can have righteousness and innocence and, and blessedness. The dove, I think, is, you know, this is kind of the activity. You gather in church, you receive the word and sacraments, and then you go forth, and that's witnessed and uh, carried out in vocation and love toward neighbor and so on in various ways. The spirit is in the individual. We have many references to this. And uh, works through the word as it's shared with another and so on. I think the dove here gives you a... A kind of picture of that going forth from the ark, but then back and received, boy, you could say tangibly, right? Noah, I love the language of uh, put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark, this kind of tangible interaction with, with God by means of his spirit working through water and bread and wine, um, and then back out. So there's this movement back to church and then out into vocation service, uh, love toward one another, back to church, and then back into... Uh, and yet, at, at some point, that dynamic will stop when we're in the the uh, the heavenly Ararat, the mountains that will endure to life everlasting. And so some that, you know, at the end of this, is she didn't return anymore, this won't be always the case. Uh, and, and we see that, of course, in the Christian life when we get to our heavenly heavenly reward. Let's take a quick break and then we'll finish up with uh, some fun stuff here as this as this closes out. Noah building an altar and so on. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. We'll be back in just a moment to the Concordia Bible Institute podcast. In the meantime, I'd like to have you consider this question. What is most important in higher education? How do you prioritize all the knowledge to be gained at an institution of higher learning? Concordia University, Wisconsin, located on the shores of Lake Michigan in Mequon, Wisconsin, just north of Milwaukee, is an institution that is committed to excellence in learning, but at the same time realizes that excellence in itself is insufficient without development in vocation. We believe that God works through our vocations, our callings, in order to serve the needs of those around us. The mission statement of Concordia University puts it this way, Concordia University, Wisconsin, is a Lutheran higher education community committed to helping students develop in mind, body, and spirit for service to Christ in the church and the world. You can learn more about the over 70 programs offered at Concordia by visiting the website, www.cuw.edu. And if you're benefiting from 
our Christ in Every Word podcasts, I encourage you to support this ministry by mentioning it to others and by offering your monetary support. Please consider supporting the Concordia Bible Institute by going to our website, www.concordiabible.org, and clicking on the Contribute page. And now, back to the podcast. there folks we are back with our study of genesis chapter 8 the flood subsiding and then we're going to have this um we're eventually get to god's covenant with Noah. it's a fascinating thing we just finished up with these birds the dove the fact that it won't always be this way uh we had some connections to eden we also have some connections to Eden once again coming up here uh, in these next few verses. We're told in verse 13 that's the 601st year, first month, first day of the month. I mean, that alone, I talked about earlier that, that why the repetition of Noah's age, the 600, this is an old guy, and he'll go on to live to 950. In some ways, I, I explained this earlier, just in brief, a kind of picture of God's church enduring the ministry. Noah's like, everybody would have flocked to hear his sermons, Luther said. Um, God sustains his church. He sustains his ministry through this high priest, Noah. You get a repetition of that with the age multiple times here. The water's dried up. Then uh, after removing the ark and looked, the face of the ground was dry. This emphasis on dry ground now, of course, you know, Red Sea and so on. We're back on ground. After the water comes the ground. Same with baptism, right? After the Same with the wilderness. Same with the desert. Same with our Lord. After the baptism comes the ground. Uh, now we live in the world, even though it's the kind of the wilderness of this life throughout this pilgrimage at least. In the second month, 27th day of the month, the earth dried out. And then we have this go out from the ark, you, your wife, your son, your son's wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. A couple things here. One is you get this picture of this is the entire church. Noah, his sons, sons, wives, everybody with you in that ark. This is a new creation. This is a new start. Now, it's not going to be perfect, and Noah himself will have some issues there, drunkenness and so on. We'll talk about that next time, I guess. Um, and yet this is the new start. This is a kind of a rebirth to the church, the new creation. You even hear this Eden stuff again. There's a lot of Eden in this, the be, be fruitful and multiply. This is exactly a restart. Um, who would have thought, but it's possible to have that again. The cost is going to come, uh, and that's to the one to come from Eve, the seed, uh, in whom all the families of the earth will be blessed. But nonetheless, a return to Eden, you already, already you get this kind of, uh, the return to Eden and, and then some is already possible. You get these, you get these kind of uh, hints of that already as you go through. So be fruitful and multiply. This is God's, uh, God's command, his blessing endures even throughout all this destruction and throughout all this time. So Noah goes out, every creeping thing, every beast, every bird that moves on the earth, he goes out by families from the ark. The other thing, too, is, you know, you hear that speaking of echoes of Eden, all this language is the exact stuff that he has dominion over. Noah is like a second Adam. 
and you get this dominion over creatures, every creeping thing, you know, all this the emphasis on creeping thing and beasts and livestock and all this. It's that image endures. Yeah, sin is messy and it's corrupted everything in this creation, but the image of God endures in some way. We're not just a bunch of animals now, right? There is a sanctity of life. There is something very special about humanity that endures through all of that. The dominion endures. Is it yes, it's going to be corrupted and so on, but the dominion endures. Um, and no, you see this as Noah goes out. This he's still there's still a, a kind of what hierarchy there, that's that uh, the Lord establishes and maintains even after all of this. And then Noah builds an arch altar. He's actually the first one here. This is the first mention of the altar in the Bible. I think it's fascinating because um, remember all that clean and unclean and all that. Now we have this clean animal, clean bird and offers burnt offerings on the altar. I think that's fascinating. Um, you get baptized, you, you, the, you're you know washed through the water, the water floods and drowns the old Adam. A new man comes forth in righteousness and innocence, and then what? Um, the divine service continues throughout your life. You're hearing God's word. Noah, by the way, Luther would have said, Noah would have preached here. He would have had all these sermons. People would have flocked to this. This is the... This is the divine service. He would have offered up sacrifices. He would have taught his people the catechism. <laughs> uh, this would have been, again, the sermons and the instruction. They would have prayed. They would have had prayers. They would have sang hymns. You know, they would have sung these things. Um, this is what's going on here, and this is exactly the life of the Christian also. The clean animal, again, this is why clean animal. These Before we even get to Leviticus, we have this, um, you will be... In the things of the divine service, you will have clean animals. These are be ultimately sacrificial animals, things of worship. And Noah builds this. This is also just a life of thanksgiving. Let my prayer rise before you as incense. Um, let us present ourselves as living sacrifices. Now that we've been saved through the water, here's the response. Our Lord speaks and we respond in worship, prayer, praise, giving thanks offering up um, to him the gifts that uh, are but his own, whatever the gift may be. The Lord smells the pleasing aroma. I love that because, he, again, Leviticus is loaded with this. He smells the pr pleasing aroma. And it's, I mean, have you, have, if you've ever smelled, I don't know, burnt hair or, or even the, the fat and bones of something, a pig or something. pig, of course, is unclean in Leviticus. But just this kind of like, yikes, why is that? Is that pleasing? Does it smell good? That kind of, ugh. What are they burning in Leviticus? And how, why does that smell good? It smells good because, in some ways, because of how terrible it smells, um, because there's forgiveness involved. It's a sweet, pleasing, a sweet-smelling aroma. Because the Lord works through these divinely appointed means to forgive sins and bless and restore and so on. So, yeah, it might smell nasty. And in some ways that confirms the fact that, you know, a punishment has to take place or death. You know, the price has to be paid. Blood needs to be shed. And yet at the same time, it's a pleasing aroma. And so the Lord says in his heart, I love this, like, you know, you might come up with rules in Leviticus, but, you know, the weightier ones, uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart and your neighbor as yourself. He says, I'll never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. 
While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. I think this is absolutely fascinating. Why did the Lord send the flood in the first place? He sees, and this is in chapter 6, right? He sees, whoa, um, he, they are flesh. Um, the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Again, think chapter 6. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. In fact, the Lord is sorry that he made man on the earth. It grieved him to his heart. I'm going to blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. Man and animals, creeping things, birds of the heavens. I'm sorry that I have made them. Why do I bring this up? The same language is used for what? I mean, this the intention of his heart is evil from his youth. This is a total like throwback to the beginning. And yet, he says, I will never again do this because the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Do you see what's happening here? The same reason is given for both sides. Why does God send the flood? Oh, because of this evil is continual and so on. Why does God bring back the flood? Well, he smells this aroma and it's, I've had mercy on man. Why? The intention of his heart is evil from his youth. The same thing that's said for why uh, there's punishment is said for uh, on the side of mercy. He does send this punishment because man is evil continually, and yet at the same time, his mercy triumphs over his wrath. The same reason is given on the flip side for how merciful he is. And again, it's tied to this sacrifice. He smells that pleasing aroma, and he says, I'm not going to do this, I'm going to have mercy, because they're evil from their youth. So the same reason pops up, and yet what triumphs in the end? It's God's mercy that triumphs over his wrath. And that's exactly what we'll see again and again throughout the scriptures, that God is just and he deals with sin. He reckons according to the punishment that's deserved. And yet at the same time, at the end of the day, over and above all of that, he has had mercy where we have deserved that punishment. And he had, he gives these continual signals that he has he has, even though he is just and he will take vengeance accordingly and so on, he has arranged for a way for his mercy to triumph over his wrath. This is huge to his character. This is who he is at his heartstrings. And this is who he is, um, of course, in culmination when he sends his son. That yes, on the cross is punishment for sin. And at the same time, it is forgiveness, life, and salvation. It is his mercy upon us. When we see that cross, we see the only evil continually, as it were, the chapter 6 stuff. And yet at the same time when we see that cross, we see the, I will never again uh, curse in this way. And I will now have mercy on the same ones who are, uh, who have uh, the intentions of, of whom are only evil from their youth. And that's the beauty of, of this narrative as well. It enhances the reality of the Christian faith centered around the person and work of Christ. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And yet, in light of the cross, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, uh, these rhythms of creation that'll be restored here after the flood will not always carry on this way. (laughs) That's the, the kind of, uh, 
reality here that these things will never cease, and yet at the same time you get to the end of the Bible in Revelation 21 and 22, night will be no more, because in the one uh, who's the embodiment of God's wrath triumphing over his mercy, his of his, excuse me, of his mercy triumphing over his wrath, is the one that brings about a new day, an eighth day, a day that has no end. Night will be no more. They won't need moon anymore. He himself will be their light. Um, and you have this, the, the rhythm that endures, the, the day and night rhythm that endures. Without night is the rhythm of the divine service where angels, archangels, all the company of heaven praise him without end. Alrighty. Well, I think that's a good place to call it for this time. But hey, spread the word. Uh, tell others so that they can learn more about Christianity and Genesis with us. The mission of the Concordia Bible Institute is to provide Christ-centered Bible instruction from distinguished experts who teach Christ in every word of the Old and New Testaments to strengthen faith and spread belief in the one true God. Again, if you benefit from this podcast series, I encourage you to consider supporting the Bible Institute by going to our website, www.concordiabible.org and clicking on our Contribute page. Until next time, my friends, I'm Dr. Brian Gurman, wishing you all God's blessings in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.